And if you have your Bible, turn to Mark chapter 16. We're going to be looking at the first seven verses of Mark 16 on this Resurrection Sunday. And uh, I just, I want to start by um, just acknowledging that uh, this has been a strange week for me in terms of sermon preparation. I, I haven't spent more time on any topic in Scripture uh, more than I've spent on the Easter story. I mean, I've spent considerably more time on the Easter story than on anything else. And uh, one of the blessings of that is, is that there's a kind of a familiarity with a lot of the details of the story. But one of the things that's just been uh, kind of happening to me this week is uh, I've spent a lot of the week overwhelmed by the story. Um, and I want to tell you why. The more I dig in to the last eight days of Jesus' earthly ministry and then his resurrection, so Palm Sunday to Easter Sunday, um, the more little beautiful details I find uh, in that story, just little things that we, that we kind of just maybe read over but are, to me, uh, just kind of breathtaking because what they reveal to me is the intentionality of Christ in this process. And so one of the places where my head has been all week um, has just been thinking about, okay, what in my life has been affected by the resurrection of Jesus Christ? And the answer is everything. Everything in my life is touched because Christ is risen. Everything in my life has been shaped in one way or another because of him. And uh, it's very sobering for me to think about that. I think about my wife, I think about my kids, I think about my job, I think about this city in which I live, I think about you uh, and the friendships that I have with so many of you and the growing friendships. And I just, I marvel at the way that the Lord doesn't just engage parts of us with the reality of his resurrection, but all of us. And uh, I want to talk about that this morning. And I just want you to know that, you know, the, the, the story that we're going to talk about, about Peter, the disciple named Peter, um, one of the profoundly encouraging things in Scripture for me is to see these characters, Peter, Mary Magdalene, John, and to realize there are no cartoon characters in Scripture. There's no people who are one note in Scripture, you know? These are people with complex lives and great moments of triumph, some of them, and devastating moments of collapse and failure, some of them. And that's encouraging to us because we're that way, right? It tells us that the people that, the, 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 there, there's only one hero in the story of Scripture, and that's Christ. And all the rest of them have these moments where sometimes they do wonderful things, but then they kind of also do terrible things. And yet, these are the kinds of folks about which the gospel is written and to whom the gospel is for, and that's us. And I'm encouraged by that because sometimes our lives just get derailed. And I don't know about you. I don't know if you would say, 
If I asked you the question, where right now in your life are you just feeling derailed? <laughs> like you, you, you wanted your life to be a certain way, and it's not that way. And it's a tricky question. And the reason it's a tricky question is because for many of us, you can look at our lives and not notice that we feel just this internal conflict of my life has been really derailed. It's not what I wanted it to be. When I was younger and I dreamed of what I wanted my life to be and the kind of person I wanted to be in this world, I am not that person. And I don't know how it happened along the way. I don't know what happened. But it's just, just didn't pan out the way that I dreamed and the way that I hoped. For some of us, we get derailed, you know, kind of from big things, right? From tragedy strikes, uh, an accident, an illness, a death, or some moral collapse, right, that's, that's public or that's just known by the right people to just stop you, you know? But then for others of us, there's just, it's more subtle, the things that derail us. It's arrogance. It's the arrogance to not listen to the voices around you, to say, I don't need anybody to be speaking into my life. I understand all that I need to understand. When you don't, when there's people saying, listen, stop, pay attention. Or maybe there's just, and this one is, just being honest, this one is me to a T, is that there's, there's just boundary lines in life that you want to cross. I want to be a better friend. I want to be a better husband. I want to be a more engaged dad. And yet, it's like you just come up to the edge of a boundary, and there's nothing really stopping you from, you know, turning off the TV and, or lingering when you're tucking your kids in at night instead of just trying to get that part of the day over with. There's nothing stopping. I might be the only one who knows what that's about. I don't know. But what is it? What is it that makes us walk up to the edge of something wonderful and just kind of hold? This is a kind of being derailed. And it can suck the life out of us. It can make us look at ourselves and think, I just am not who I wanted to be. And when we start to go down this road, the basic act of having faith and even believing in the idea that there's hope for me can be a scary thing because bundled together with this idea of hope, maybe hope that I can change, maybe hope that my life can be what I dreamed it would be, or maybe my life can be something even greater than I dreamed it would be. My my dreams were immature, they weren't well formed, and now, now they can be so much more. To even hope that, there's a fear that comes with that often because it's this fear of, yeah, but what is that gonna mean for me? What is that going to mean? How am I going to have to change? What are the things that are going to shift? I pray that if you feel stuck, if you feel derailed, if you feel that you're somebody, life is not turning out the way that I hoped it would be, that this Easter, the story of Peter and Christ's interaction with him would unstick you that the Lord would meet you in a powerful way because we're going to talk about failure. We're going to talk about failure and hope together and how those things work together. We're going to talk about God's purpose for your life through the story of this disciple who has his life derailed. And it's not just him. It's all the other disciples and all the people who loved Jesus, all the people who walked with him. Their, Their world had been turned upside down at the crucifixion. 
and they weren't sure what to do. And so to frame this, I want to read a resurrection account from Mark, the first seven verses. And then I want us to just spend a little bit of time exploring what is happening here on this Easter Sunday. So this is Mark 16, 1 to 7. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so that they might go and anoint Jesus' body. Very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb and they asked each other, who will roll away the stone from the entrance of the tomb? But when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. And they entered the tomb and they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side and they were alarmed. Do not be alarmed, he said. You're looking for Jesus, the Nazarene, who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him? But go and tell his disciples and Peter, he's going ahead of you into Galilee. And there you will see him just as he told you. These people are not cartoon characters. These are people in mourning. Their hearts are broken. These are women who have walked with Jesus for years. These are people who have helped to care for him and the disciples. They've loved him and they've lost a friend. They've lost somebody very, very dear to him. And so they're up early and they're heading to the tomb to anoint his body, to care for him. And what's going on there is, this is something that people would do, loved ones, you know, his, his bodies would decompose and smell. They would bring spices and they would sort of try to mask the ugliness of what was happening and to care for them. It was kind of an, a very affectionate an intimate thing to do. And that's what they were going to do on this morning. And they have this problem of the stone and they don't know how the stone, it probably weighed over a ton, was there covering the mouth of the grave and they weren't sure how this was gonna work. And they get there and the stone has been moved. And not only that, but someone is there and it's not Jesus. Jesus isn't in the tomb. And they're alarmed. The other gospel writers, one of them says that it was a man dressed in lightning, which I love that. I love these descriptions of the gospel writer thinking, how do we describe what Mary and Salome told us about? It's like they described that he was like wearing radiance. He was dressed in, in lightning. And he speaks to them and he tells them, He's not here, but, but stick with me for a second. Pursue the grief, the sorrow that may be shutting you down right now in your life. I was 10 years old, and I lived in Indiana farmland and uh, lived on a dirt road. And back, back there, you know, you had dogs, but you didn't have leashes, you know. The dogs were just constrained to the yard because you were the only yard around, and we had a dog named Dusty who belonged to my grandpa. And one day when I was in fifth grade, I was outside playing and she got hit by a car. And I saw it. I was close to her. And I remember, you know, I'm 10. I remember seeing this happen and falling to my knees, calling her name 
and her running, staggering toward me and collapsing in my lap and looking at me in the eyes and dying. I'm 10 years old. What am I supposed to do with that as a 10-year-old? It felt like this dog, this Irish setter, had selected me to carry the bulk of the grief of her death by dying in my lap. And I felt real alone in that. And that was the day where I was introduced to a concept that has become much more complex and sophisticated since then, but that was the day I met it. And the concept I'm talking about is the concept of irreversibility. That there are things that happen in this world that once they happen, they don't unhappen. There's no turning back. It's like this hammer against the anvil of life, just shaping me, pounding me. And that was a moment for me of grief entering in. These women are very well versed right now in this concept of irreversibility. They're going to this tomb because when people die, they don't undie. And they know that what this means, that he was crucified and died, means that he is now gone. And after we buried my dog, I would go to the grave and study the ground to see, look for motion. What if, what if she wasn't dead? What if she was just not well, you know? And the reason I would do this is because I would have these very vivid dreams that I'd be playing at the creek and I'll, she'd come right up to me and I'd look at her and I'd realize, wow, you, you were dead and now you're here. Awesome. You know, these, you know how dreams can seem so like they belong even though they, they don't belong. And I, I wonder when these women arrive at the tomb and they see the stone rolled away and they see the man dressed in lightning, they, they just, they, they think, okay, this is dreamlike. This is, this is a dream coming true, but he addresses them, and he says, don't be afraid, don't be alarmed, of course they're alarmed, they're talking to an angel, and a stone has been miraculously moved, and Jesus isn't there, and he tells them he's not here, he's risen, as he said, and then he tells, he gives them a directive, and this is where I want us to focus for the rest of our time, is something interesting that Mark records, that to me is one of those details I was talking about earlier that just is brilliant in its beauty. He says this. He says, tell the disciples and Peter that he is going ahead to meet you. That's interesting to me. Why? Why tell the disciples and Peter? Because Peter was one of the disciples. Why does the angel name Peter? And the answer is because Peter's life had been completely derailed in the events of this crucifixion. Peter had failed. He had failed colossally. And these two words, and Peter, 
are, are nothing short of a ruthless confrontation of love that's intended for Peter's heart. These are hands on his shoulders, eyes staring into his eyes, calling his name, calling his name. Peter was one of Jesus' first disciples. Him and his brother Andrew, they were the early ones. They were the first ones to follow Jesus. They were fishermen by trade. And I want to tell you how Peter received the call to follow Christ. It's significant. They were fishing on the Sea of Galilee, and it was a bad day for fishing. They weren't catching any fish. Nothing was biting. And there's this man who says, hey, how's it going? And they say, not so good. And he says, well, why don't you put your net on the other side of the boat and see what happens? And they say, we've been doing this all day long. But if, okay, fine, nothing to lose. And so they do that, and all of a sudden their net is full of fish, and they're straining at it, trying to pull it in. And Peter and his brother Andrew are thinking to themselves, who is this guy? And, they, and they're just kind of blown away by this. And they go to him and they say, we're not worthy to hang around you. And Jesus is the one. He says to them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And Peter leaves everything to follow Jesus. He's not going to be a fisher of fish anymore. He's going to be a fisher of men. But then after the crucifixion, Peter goes back to fishing. He goes back to this life of fishing. Why? Because only just days before Christ was risen, he was going through a trial. And Peter was standing at a distance, kind of watching the trial, watching Christ get beaten. And there were people who were saying to Peter, hey, weren't you one of the disciples? And Peter was like, no, I don't know what you're talking about. And the problem with this, aside from the obvious, is that earlier that night, Jesus had been talking to Peter and he said, Peter, you're going you're gonna to fall away. And Peter said, even if all these other guys at this table fall away, I won't. And Jesus said, not only will you, but you're going to do it tonight before the rooster crows in the morning. And Peter swore that he would not do that. But then there he is while Jesus is undergoing his trial. And a girl is warming herself next to the fire where Peter is. And she says, I recognize you. You are one of the disciples. And he cusses at her. And he says, I never knew the man. And the rooster crows. And he weeps. His heart is broken. He's done this terrible thing. This was something that he had to know. You know when you do things like this. That this isn't coming from someplace outside you. This is coming from someplace deep inside you. This is the overflow of your heart from the deepest recesses of this man. He's tested and he fails. And it calls into question everything. He'd been walking with Jesus for three years now. And he had this one moment where Jesus needed him. Where Jesus could have used a friend and he just collapses in on himself. And he's derailed. The problem is, he did love Jesus. He loved him. He was just weak. <laughs> and Jesus loved him too. But who among us, when we fail big, doesn't wonder, how much is lost now? How much have I lost? Is this changing everything? How much can someone recover from? Did Peter lose the love of Christ when he said, I don't know the man? His life with Jesus was 
a rich one. It's, it's one of the lives that we hear more about in the gospel narratives than anybody else's. And he was, he was a guy who, who, who would, uh, his, how do they say it? His, his mouth would write checks that his body couldn't cash, that he would say certain things, he would boast in certain confidences in himself, that he would speak his mind quickly before he had a chance to think. And there were times when this humiliated him, right? There were times when he would say things, uh, he would say things like, even if all these other guys deny you, I won't, these sorts of things. But then there were other times where Peter was amazing. It wasn't just that he was a clown. It wasn't just that he was an obnoxious loudmouth. He was also the one who, when he saw, when all the disciples saw Jesus walking on water, Peter's the one that said, I'm going to do that too, and got out of the boat. Peter was the one who, when Jesus said, who do people say that I am? Peter said, I know who you are. You're the Christ. You're the son of the living God. And Jesus said, on this confession, I'm going to build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it, Peter. Peter was the one who, while Jesus was being arrested, he drew a sword to defend him. He cut off the ear of a soldier. But then only hours later, denied him. The rails that Peter had been running on for three years were the rails of defending and preaching about Jesus. Jesus was his man. This is the guy that he was following. He was giving his life to follow him. But now, Jesus was gone. And Peter was lost. And then the angel says to the women at the tomb, tell the disciples and Peter that he is going to meet you. It's amazing. It's amazing to think about this that they would name him, that he would be on the mind of God in this way. Matthew tells us that once the women picked themselves up off the ground, that they ran to tell Peter what they'd seen, that Peter ran to the tomb and did find it empty, and he marveled at what he saw. But still, then in the ensuing days, he did go back to fishing. He was uncertain about whether his call still stood. And then a few days later in John 21, we read about this moment where Jesus encounters Peter while he's fishing. A man appears on the shore and they haven't been catching anything. And the man calls from the shore, how's it going? And they say, not good. And he says, put your nets on the other side of the boat. You see what's happening? You see what Jesus is doing? And they put their nets on the other side of the boat and they start to pull and it is filled with fish again. And the lights go on for Peter. He realizes, <laughs> I've done this before. I've been down this road before. It's the Lord. And in his haste, he can't wait for the boat to get back to shore. He jumps out and he swims. This is a man whose life is being arrested by the confrontational love of God. That Christ is standing there and he is recreating a scene in Peter's memory and is calling him to this. It's the Lord, he jumps out of the boat and he goes 
and he falls at the feet of Jesus. He doesn't know what's about to happen, but he knows that it's the Lord. And he also knows that he's calling me now in the same way that he called me the first time. And so he's standing there dripping before his Lord. And Jesus asks him the question of all questions. Peter, do you love me? And Peter says, I love you. And he says, Peter, do you love me? And he says, yeah, I I love you. And he asks him again, hands on the shoulders, eye contact. Listen to yourself, Peter. Do you love me? And at this he breaks. You know everything about me. You know that I do love you. And Jesus says, then feed my sheep. What is he saying? He's saying, my call on your life stands, Peter. You did not mess it up. You didn't mess it up. My call on your life stands. Feed my sheep like I told you when we met that I would make you a fisher of men. I am making you a fisher of men. What does this mean for us? What does this mean for us today, this picture of Jesus engaging Peter in this way? From the angel saying, tell the disciples and Peter, use his name, let him know that he's part of this discussion. To having this scene recreated of the first time that he was called, to telling him, feed my sheep. I told you I was gonna make you a fisher of men. I still mean to make you a fisher of men. What does this mean for us? Us whose lives get so easily derailed. One, it means that God's call on our lives is unyielding in the face of our failures. So we can face him as we are. You don't have to clean yourself up to make yourself presentable to God in order that he might say, I remember you. Are you still doing those stupid things you were doing before when I kind of lost interest in you? Have you cleaned up yourself? That's not the picture. The picture is while Peter is in the process of withdrawing and retreating from a life of following Christ, Christ is coming to him and is recreating scenes that don't just trigger memories for Peter, but that that tug on his heart. Your failure, your failure, cannot, cannot overrule God's will for you. Why? Because you have a living Savior. You don't have in Jesus just an inspirational martyr who was in the wrong place at the wrong time and died and gave us some important things to think about. You have, and I have, a Savior who is risen, who has beaten death. He's a living Savior. He lived the life that I couldn't live, died in my place, gave his righteousness to me. I am right before God because I believe in Christ. And nothing, 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 nothing can undo that because it's not my work. It's his. God's call is unyielding in the face of our failings. Many of us live with a fear. And it's a fear that, One songwriter describes as the fear that I'll fall too many times. It's the fear that his love is no better than mine. 
We live in that, many of us. We think, God's going to love me like I love him. The hope of the gospel is that we can face him and know him and know that his call is unyielding in our failings because he loves us better than we love him. (laughs) His love is perfect. It is greater than ours. And you see this. You see this where he's meeting Peter in this shame, recreating these scenes for his heart. Second, God's call is a call to action. He's not just meeting Peter on that shore in Galilee to give him a clear conscience. I know you're going to be fishing, and I know you feel guilty. Let me clear your conscience so you can fish without guilt. That's not the point. He's calling Peter to a life of giving himself away. When Peter jumped out of that boat, he was leaving behind a life of being what he was before Christ. And as he was swimming to Jesus on the shore, he was swimming to his own death. (laughs) He ends up a martyr for the cause of Christ, but also a key architect in the development of the church throughout Asia Minor. It's an amazing moment in history where this life that has been derailed is being brought back onto the rails of the gospel. And the Lord is saying, Peter, I'm not just here to clear your conscience. I'm here to tell you that a life of following me is a life of action. You have a call, brothers and sisters, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, to bear witness to him, to bear witness to him with your entire life. Every facet of your being, you have this call. It's not a call that he calls you to in order that you might be accepted, but because you already have been. We're called to be agents of redemption. Jesus meant what he said. To Peter, and he means what he says to us when he says, I will make you my disciples throughout the world. You will proclaim me. You will bear witnesses. You will be my witnesses in the world. And then third, what this means for us is God's call has an end game. There's a destination. What is the basis for him saying, feed my sheep? It's, do you love me? But there's something so worshipful about Easter to me, and that is that it is reminding me over and over and over again that the story of the gospel is not meant just to help me out from day to day, but that it is the story of where I'm headed and where I'm going to spend eternity and what that eternity is going to be like. We read about it in Revelation 21 earlier. But there's something worshipful here that he is saying, my call on your life, my call on your life is to me. It's to me. It's not just to things. It's not just to a particular place where your conscience feels clean. It's a call to himself. And it's a beautiful, beautiful call. And so he says, tell the disciples and Peter, that I'm going to meet them, that we're not done, that this story is not over. Put your name there. Tell the disciples and your name. That he's gone on to meet you. The love between Jesus and his people has an enduring destination in glory, and there's nothing that can destroy it. And Peter's story is an example of this. It's an incredible testimony to this. This man whose life has been derailed has been brought back on the rails. No war in the world can destroy it. No failing among people can break it. 
No power of darkness can subdue it because his love is so much greater than ours and he is alive even now, loving us actively. He's risen. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for the way that you um, pursue people in your word. Father, we thank you that, that you go after your people not just with words and warnings, but, but the way that you engage the hearts of your people, the way that you bring things into our lives that remind us that while we change and that while our circumstances change, you don't. Father, thank you for the empty tomb. Thank you for, that we have a risen Savior who is alive and active, who gives us a spirit, who works in us and through us, not according to our own strength and not defeated by our own failings, but who works for the glory of his own name. Father, would you engage us with that and the wonder of that and the beauty of that. It's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.